Chapter 5, Part B of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter 5, Part B. Mr. Albert Weiner, Queen Elizabeth Hotel, Perth, Western Australia, A.C. Dear Sir, According to your instructions, our party left Paramaribo on the ninth instant for Medellin, giving out that we were going to see possible tin deposits near there. At Medellin, I checked with our men and was told that work gangs with the stuff needed to make landing fields, together with caches of gas and oil, enough for three times the flying required, had been dropped both at Mount Whitney and on Banks Island. A.W., I tell you, the boys down there are on their toes. Of course, I did not tell them this, but gave them a real old-fashioned pep-talk, and told them if they really made good they might be moved up to Rio or Copenhagen, or maybe even London. Everything being okay in Medellin, we left on the twelfth instant, heading at first south to fool any nosy cops, and then straight west, so as to be out of range of the patrol boats. It was quite late before we could head north, and the navigator was flying by instruments, so it was not until dawn that we saw land. You can sneer all you like at Brother Paul, and of course he has not had the benefits of an education like you, A.W., but I want to tell you that when I looked out of the port and saw nothing but green grass where houses and trees and mountains ought to have been, I remembered that I was a backslider and sinful man. However, this is beside the point. The lady professor, Miss Frances, I mean, and Mr. White and Mr. Black were both so excited they could hardly eat, but kept making funny remarks in some foreign language which I do not understand. However, I do not think there was anything wrong or disloyal to you in their conversation. You would have thought that flying over so much green would have got tiresome after some time, but you would have been wrong. I am sorry I cannot describe it to you, but I can only say again that it made me think of my account with my maker. While I think of it, although it does not belong here, in Paramaribo I had to fire our local man as he got into trouble with the police there and was given consolidated pemmican a bad name. He said it was on the firm's account, but I told him you did not approve of breaking the law at all. We had no trouble sighting the party at Mount Whitney, and I want to tell you, A.W., it was a great relief to get rid of the scientists, although they are no doubt all right in their own way. Some of the work gang kicked at being left behind, although that was in our agreement. They said they were sick of the snow and the sight of the grass beyond. I said we only had room in the transport for the Banks Island gang, and anyway, they would have company now. I promised them we would pick them up on our next trip. Miss Frances and the two others acted like crazy. They kept shaking each other's hands and saying, We are here, we are here, although anybody but a nut would have thought saying it was a waste of time as even a small child could have seen that they were. And anyway, why anybody should want to be there is something beyond me. We took off from Whitney on the 14th instant, flying back southwest. There were no landmarks, but the navigator told me when we were over the side of L.A. I have to report that the grass looked no different in this area where it is the oldest. Then we flew northeast, looking for the Great Salt Lake, according to your instructions. 
I am sorry to say that we could not find it, although we flew back and forth for some time, searching while the instruments were checked. The lake has disappeared in the grass. We headed northeast by east, finding no landmarks except a few peaks above the snow on the Rocky Mountains. I am very glad to say that the Great Lakes are still there, although much smaller, and Lake Erie and Lake Ontario so shrunk I might have missed them if the pilot had not pointed them out. The St. Lawrence River is, of course, gone. We followed the line of the big Canadian lakes north, but except for depressions, which may be swamps, in the latitudes of the Great Bear and Great Slave Lakes, there is nothing but grass. We stayed overnight at Banks Island, and it was very cold and miserable, but we were happy to remember that there was no grass underneath the snow below us. Next morning, the 16th, after fueling up, we took off, with the ground crew, for the homeward trip. Stopping at Whitney, everything was okay, except that I did not see the lady professor, Miss Frances, I mean, as Mr. White and Mr. Black said she was too busy. I will be in London to meet you on the first, as arranged, and give you any further news you want. Until then, I remain yours truly. A. Preblesham, Vice President in Charge of Field Operations, Consolidated Pemmican. I cannot say Preblesham's report was particularly enlightening, but it at least squelched any notion the grass might be dying of itself. I did not expect any great results from the scientists' expedition, but I felt it worth a gamble. In the meantime, I dismissed the lost continent from my mind and turned to more immediate concerns. The disappearance of American foundries and the withdrawal of the Russian products from export after their second revolution have forced a boom in European steel. English, French, and German manufacturers of automobiles, rails, and locomotives, anticipating tremendously enlarged outlets for their output, even if those new markets still fell short of the demands formerly drawing upon the American factories, had earmarked the entire world supply for a long time to come. Since I owned large blocks of stock, not only in the industries, but in the rolling mills as well, this boom was profitable to me. I had long since passed the point where it was necessary, no matter how great my expenses or philanthropies, for me to exert myself further. But, as I have always felt anyone who gains wealth without effort is no better than a parasite, I was contracting for new plants in Bohemia, Poland, northern Italy, and France. I did not neglect buying heavily into the Braille Basin and into the Swedish ore mines to ensure the further supply of these mills. In spite of the able assistance of Stuart Thario and the excellent spade work of Preblesham, I was so busy at this time, for in addition to everything else the sale of concentrates diagrammed an ever-ascending spiral, that food and sleep seemed to be only irritating curtailments of the working day. It was the fashion when I was a youth for novelists to sneer at businessmen and proclaim that the conduct of industry was a simple affair, such as any half-wit could attend to with but a portion of his mind. I wish these cynics could have come to know the delicate workings and balances of my intricate empire. We in responsible positions, and myself most of all, were on a constant alert, ready for instant decision or personal attention to a mass of new detail at any moment. On one of the occasions when I had to fly to Copenhagen, it was Winifred and not General Thario who met me at the airport. General T is so upset, 
she explained in her vivacious way, that I had to come instead. But perhaps I should have sent Pauline. I assured her I was pleased to see her, and hastened to express concern for her father. Oh, it's not him at all, really, she said. It's Mamma. She's all bothered about Joe. I lowered my voice respectfully and said I was sure Mrs. Thario was overcome with grief, and perhaps I had better not intrude at such a time. Pooh, dissented Winifred. Mamma doesn't know what grief is. She's simply delighted at Joe's doing a custer, but she's awfully bothered about his music. In what way, I asked. Do you mean getting it performed? Getting it performed, nothing. Getting it suppressed. That a long line of generals and admirals should wind up in a composer is to her a disgrace which will need a great deal of living down. It preys on her mind. Poor old Stuart is home now, reading her choice passages from The Winning of the West by Theodore Roosevelt to soothe her nerves. I had been more than a little apprehensive of meeting Mamma again, but Winifred's report seemed to reassure me that she would be confined, if not to her bed, at least to her own apartments. I was sadly disillusioned to find her ensconced in a comfortable armchair beside a brightly burning fire, the general with a book held open by his thumb. He greeted me with his usual affection. Albert, I'm sorry I wasn't able to get to the airport. I shook his hand and turned to his wife. I regret to hear you are indisposed, Mrs. Sario. Spare me your damned crocodile tears. Where is my son? In his last letter, he suggested he would remain in our country as long as it existed. However, it is possible, even probable, he escaped. Let us hope so, Mrs. Sario. That's the sort of damned hogwash you feed to green troops, not to veterans. My son is dead. In action. My grandfather went the same way at Chancellorsville. Do you think me some whimpering broom-pusher to weep at the loss of a son on the battlefield? Stuart Thario put his hand on her arm. Easy. Blood pressure. No excitement. Not in regimentals, said Mamma, and relapsed into silence. We had a very uneasy dinner, during which we were unable to discuss business, owing to the presence of the ladies. Afterward, the general and I withdrew with our coffee. He did not drink at home, so I missed the clarity which always accompanied his indulgence, and were deep in figures and calculations when Winifred summoned us hastily. General! Mr. Weiner, Come quickly! Mamma! We hurried into the living room, I for one anticipating Mamma, if not in the throes of a stroke, at least in a faint. But she was standing upright before the open fire, an unsheathed cavalry saber in her hand. It was clearly a family relic, for from its guard dangled the golden tassel of the United States Army, and on its naked blade were little spots of rust, but it looked dangerous enough as she warned us off with a sweep of it. In her other hand, I recognized the bulky manuscript of George Thario's first symphony, which she was burning, page by page. Some damned impostor, she said. Some damned impostor. Harriet, protested the general. Harriet, please. The boy's work. Only copy. She fed another leaf to the fire. Imposter! Harriet! 
He advanced toward her, but she waved him away with the sharp blade. "'Can't burn George's work this way. Gave his life!' I had not thought highly of Joe's talents as a musician, believing them by and large to be but reflections of his unfortunate affectations. I think I can say I appreciate good music, and I've often taken a great deal of pleasure from hearing a hotel band play Rubenstein's Melody in F or like classical numbers during mealtimes. But even if Joe's symphony was but a series of harsh and disjointed sounds, I thought its destruction a dreadful thing for Mamma to do, and the more shocking, aside from any question of artistic taste, because of its reversal of all we associate with the attitude of true motherhood. "'Mrs. Thario,' I protested, "'as your son's friend I beg you to consider—' "'Impudence!' declared Mamma pointing the sword at me so that I involuntarily backed up, although already at a respectful distance. "'Damned impudence!' she repeated, feeding another page to the fire. "'Came into my house, bold as brass, and said, "'Cream, if you please.' "'Ha! I'll cream him, I will!' And she made a violent gesture with the saber, as though skewering me upon its length. I whispered to Constance, who was standing closest, that her mother had undoubtedly lost her reason, and should be forcibly restrained. Unhappily, the old lady's keen ears caught my suggestion. Oh, deranged, am I? I spend my life making more money than I can spend, do I? I push my way against all decency into the company of my betters, boring them and myself for no earthly reason, do I? I live on crackers and milk because I've spent my nervous energy piling up the means to buy an endless supply of steaks and chops my doctor forbids me to eat. I starve my employees half to death in order to give them money I steal from them to some charity which hands a small part of it back, eh? I hire lobbyists or bribe officials to pass laws and then employ others to break them. I foster nationalist organizations with one hand and build up international cartels with the other, do I? I'm crazy, am I? Excited by her own rhetoric, she put several pages at once into the flames. Constance pleaded, Mama, this is all we have left of Joe. Please, Mama." Sundays the church banner is raised above the flag. I never heard a post-chaplain say immortality was contained on pieces of paper. Comfort them, Mamma, suggested Winifred. Creative work, muttered the general. Is it some trivial thing to endure the pangs of childbed that the creations of men are so exalted? I have offered my life on a battlefield no less and no more than my grandfather fought on at Chancellorsville. Little minds do not judge, but I judge. I bore a son. He was my extension, as this weapon is my extension. She thrust the sword forward to emphasize her utterance. I will not hesitate to judge my son. If he did not die in proper uniform, at least I shall not have him go down as a maker of piano notes instead of bugle calls. She threw the balance of the score into the fire and stirred it into a blaze with the steel's point. 
The ringing of the telephone bell put a period to the scene. Constance, who spoke several languages, answered it. She carried on an incomprehensible conversation for a minute, and then motioned to me with her head. It's for you, Mr. Weiner, Rio. I'll wait till they get the connection through. She turned to the mouthpiece again and encouraged the operator with a soothing flow of words. I was vastly relieved at the interruption. It was undoubtedly Prebleson calling me on some routine matter, but it served to distract attention from the still-muttering old lady and give her a chance to subside. Prebleson's voice came in a bodiless waver over the miles. A.W., can you hear me? I can give you a tip. Just about three hours ahead of the radio and newspapers. Can you understand me? Our big competitor has bought the adjoining property. Do you get me, A.W.? I nodded at the receiver as though he could see me, my thoughts racing furiously ahead. I had understood him all right. The grass had somehow jumped the saltwater gap and was loose upon another continent. I had about three hours in which to dispose of all my South American holdings before their value vanished. Telephone facilities in the Thario house, though adequate for the transaction of the general's daily business, were completely unequal to the emergency. Even if they had not been, Mamma's occasional sallies from her fireplace fort, saber-waving threateningly, frequently endangered half our communications, and we suffered all the while from the idiosyncrasies of the continental operators, who seem unable ever to make a clear connection, varying this annoyance by a habit of either dropping dead or visiting the nearest café at those crucial moments when they did not interrupt a tense interchange by polite inquiries as to whether Monsieur had been connected. I must say that in this crisis Stuart Thario displayed all his soldierly qualities to the full. Sweeping aside his domestic concerns, as he would at the order of mobilization, he became swift, decisive, vigorous. The first call he put through was to the Christian Four Hotel, engaging every available empty room so that we might preempt as much of the switchboard as possible pressing Constance and Winifred into service as secretaries until his own office staff could be summoned, and leaving Pauline to deal with Mamma, he had us established in the hotel less than three-quarters of an hour from the time Prebleshem phoned. Even as the earliest calls were being put through, a barely perceptible signal passed from the general to Winifred, and presently large parts of the Christian Four Bar were being arranged on a long table to the general's elbow. I had little time for observation, since I had to exert all my powers of salesmanship on unseen financiers to persuade them by indirection that I was facing a financial crisis, and they had a chance to snap up my South American holdings at fractions of their values. But out of the corner of my eye I admired the way Stuart Thario continuously sipped from his constantly refilled glass without hesitating in his duplicating endeavors. I expected the news to break and end our efforts at any moment, but the quickness with which I had seized upon Prebleshem's information confirmed the proverb about the early bird. The three-hour reprieve stretched to five, and by the time Havas flashed the news, I had liquefied almost all of my now worthless assets, and to potential financial rivals. 
Needless to say, I had not trusted solely to the honor of the men with whom I had conversed, but had the sale confirmed in each case by an agent on the spot who accepted a check, draft, or cash from the buyer. Only on paper did I suffer the slightest loss. In actuality, my position became three times as strong as before. End of chapter 5, part B